Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. So when I graduated from the University of Minnesota, I was kind of happy to be out of there. I managed to graduate a year early and still three years was enough for me. I kind of knew I wasn't going to go back for more education like a master's or anything like that. But come September of that year, 2015, I think it was, uh, the fall I I, I graduated, I attended the Grass-Fed Exchange Conference in Michigan hosted by Jason Roundtree in Michigan State University. And what he was doing there got me so excited and honestly just surprised me based on my university beef program and kind of what my experience in the university system was. I I thought then if I ever was going to go back to school, it'd be for sure in that program there under Jason. He's doing some pretty awesome work researching and studying low input beef production systems and how grazing systems can affect climate and carbon sequestration. And he's doing it all in a university setting which is just so unique. And so I'm really grateful that he was willing to give us a little time here to talk. And so Jason, welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Hey, Jared. Thanks, man. Good to be here. I'm excited. I'm excited. Ever since then, I was like, gosh, this guy's got something cool. I I need to talk to talk to him and learn more. And and here we are. I'm really grateful for the time. But uh, if you wouldn't mind by just starting off with your history and how you got to Michigan and Michigan State doing the research that you're doing. Yeah, I grew up uh, in Southeast Texas, not far from Houston, Texas, and um, came through. I was, my dad's a dentist, and um, just so happened my sister and I both really enjoyed showing livestock at a young age, or you know, junior high years anyway, and on. And so I kind of, you know, came in in a non-traditional way. Um, grew up outdoors. We hunted and fished all along the Gulf Coast in South Texas, and still do. And but came through the the kind of the show ring the 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 um the truly aesthetic non realistic component of our industry that still held a lot of fun. But ultimately, um, the the point being is that came through that way. And so over time, you know, I worked and got my degrees um, at Mississippi State and Michigan State, where I coach livestock judging and. So I, I graduated from Michigan State with a PhD in the early 2000s and went to LSU. And LSU kind of it was a tr- tr- just a huge eye-opener for me. And, and, you know, we had Angus and Herefords on campus up at Michigan State, and we had Brayfords and Brangus down there. And so I kind of was doing the normal thing, right? I always go to Wendell Berry's quote. He says, he says land-grant institutions are like airports. Once you've been to one, you've been to them all. And so, you know, here you are in this research world, right? Like doing all the same stuff everybody else is doing. And, you know, it's that herd, right? It's that, that Mm -hmm. tribal mentality of we're the scientists and we know better kind of a gig. And so, you know, things were rolling and just kind of doing the same old stuff. And then we got smoked by a lot of hurricanes in 05, Katrina and Rita. And, you know, it, it just really gave me an opportunity to stop and think because I ended up having a lot to do with recovery and relief down there. And, and man, I just saw how quickly the world goes to shambles. We can be secure and think we got her made and then boom, you know, it can happen with an ice storm. It can happen, um, whatever. And, and so after that, you know, I started thinking about really questioning what we're doing because when you go down to these areas, 
there were a lot of commodity production. There was really no local regional food systems. Everything was pretty dependent on fossil fuels, fertilizers, et cetera. And so I just started thinking different, man, about like how this gig, you know, what does this look like? And so um, discovered Alan Savory and all these people like Kit, Farrow, and, you know, people that, that were just quite frankly contrarian, you know, mm-hmm. to the herd, right? And, sure. and, yeah. and I always remember, you know, Kit's bumper stickers that he had probably a good 10 years ago, the herd quitter ones. And I had one on my, my, my ride. And, you know, and so we, we, you know, I left LSU and came up here and 09 and um have been here for the last 13 years and had this opportunity to take this farm that you've been to about 600 plus grazable acres in lake city michigan south of travers right on the the 45th parallel and started at that time what does this kind of low input deal look like right and so i you know been working in that space it's kind of evolved from low input into holistic management and now i think you know we're kind of just more operating into this broader target of regenerative agriculture today. Yeah, well, you kind of touched right on one of the things I wanted to ask. Actually, a couple of weeks ago, I just had a conversation with Alan Williams, and he talked about, uh, you know, kind of this, as when he was a university faculty, and there was a challenge to do anything that wasn't status quo, you know, funding come from the same place. And, you know, everybody's kind of working towards the same thing, just like you alluded to here with that, that quote. Um, how did you, when you got to Michigan State, you know, even express the idea to them of wanting to do something totally different like this. And, and what, you know, I don't know, did they have concerns about where, where did you get the funding and, and sure. the changes that you were planning to make? First a story, man. Yeah. First a story. So crazy enough in God, when was it in 1998, our judging team at Mississippi state helped Alan Williams move into his house. <laughs> because he was on faculty at MSU, mm-hmm. and I, uh, I met him. That's where I first met him. And uh, God, I think it's '98. So is that like 14, 20, 20, 24 yeah, years it's ago? Been a long time, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's been years now, right? And and so, yeah. um, I met Alan then, you know, and and um, we didn't have a ton of overlap because I came up to Michigan State, and uh, and no, I and and so. Um, Alan was doing a lot of ultrasounding in, in, in that day mm-hmm. and trying to find, you know, grass-based genetics that worked, I think. So I got here. Okay, so so I was at LSU, right? And mm-hmm. my goodness, it in any academic system, you have to have a lot of approval. Okay, a lot. Yeah, sure. And, sure. you know, you want to do anything, you got to have that. And then it, once you get the academics, well, we got to make sure with all the cattlemen's associations and everything mm-hmm. – that they're cool and there's not going to get any feathers ruffled. And so when I came to MSU, I actually within a year had a really clear vision of what we needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, our farm, and I don't want to be critical. I mean, Harlan Ritchie oversaw this farm. Who's an icon in the beef, beef academia world and, and, you know, helped bring the original continental cattle into the U S but that, that was his farm that I work on and, and coordinate. Yeah. So I, I wanted to honor, you know, my elders. I didn't want to be like, you know, uh, too overly cantankerous, but, you know, we had cows that weighed probably 1,800, 2,000 pounds. Wow. We fertilized a lot. We hayed a lot. And the reason those cows were big was the fact that we brought in the first, con- like some of the first, very first flight V's that came into the U S came into that farm. 
and we started breeding them. We, I mean, the 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 last the couple of generations back, MSU started breeding them. Some really uh, line one, really super, you know, like nine hundred thousand pound Hereford cows, mm-hmm. and created some really nice crossbred commercials that weighed about you know twelve hundred, eleven hundred, and so we started there, and then from there it evolved into do EPDs work. So the former folks actually started AI and the cow herd to high and low growth, high and low milk EPD Angus sires and study the offspring. See, hey, do the EPDs work or not? They do, by the way. <laughs> and and you want to breed high growth, you'll get it. Uh, high milk, the same. And, and so we did that. And then after that, it became a crisscross mating of high growth, high maternal sires in the Angus and Simmental breeds. Mm-hmm. So I ended up inheriting like 40 years of this stuff. Okay, man. And, and so thir- 30 years, right? So here I come along, you know, Mr. Academia that's been listening to these outlaws on and getting the emails and doing whatever and reading and, and trying to change this, you know? And so, you know what my fear was, Jared, is that they're all going to say no, right? Like, Academic, you know, my, my bosses were going to be worried. The cattlemen's would think I was, you know, smoking dope. And so I just did it. I did it. <laughs> I didn't ask hardly go. any permission. And it was the worst decision I've ever made in my life professionally. But the point is, is I didn't ask. I, I kind of let a few people know, like my bosses, like the real inherent folks know. And so the first thing I did is I needed to get rid of these big old cows. and. So I had to figure out what to do with them. Well, we sold them down the road. And, you know, in Michigan, we're not a huge cow-calf state. So I've got like 180 cows. So we ended up kind of moving them just right down the road. Sold them for 900000 bucks a piece. And uh, it was right before everything got crazy. So that would have been 2010. So then we were able to put together a deal with 5L Red Angus out in uh, Montana, and bringing those cows. And so some of the first rumors, man, were uh, Jason Roundtree sold all the cows and he <laughs> he bought he brought back cows that are no taller than your belt buckle. <laughs> so the rumor, like in the whole, you know, deal going around was like I brought I bought these little, you know, belt buckle dudes, these little, you know, 750, 800 pounders uh in. So it just, I made a lot of bad decisions. I, I just, I charged, right? I went hard. I got it done. I got rid of all the fertilizer. I wasn't that really astute and managed grazing. Um, I brought people like Jim Garish out, Alan Williams, Doug Peterson, a lot of the real icons, in my opinion. Um, others, Alan actually helped us do work on that genetic deal and, and has been a huge supporter of what we do. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I, and then, man, then I just got my ass in all kinds of trouble because I didn't ask for permission. I did the beg mm-hmm. for forgiveness. And so they didn't trust me. Nobody in the state trusted me. Right. And so I, I ultimately, you know, put my hat in my hand and, and explained that, that, um, you know, I made some mistakes, but I did get what I needed. I got what I wanted and it took me a while to earn trust and to gain support for the center. And so it's kind of one of those things where you look at it, it's holistic management, that social weak link. You don't want to break a, a link socially with somebody's support you need in the future. Sure. And that was a key lesson, and I learned that. 
no, that makes a makes a lot of sense. And do you think if you had gone the way that they kind of the the traditional route of asking for permission that you ever would have gotten to be doing what you're doing now? Yeah, it might have taken a year longer, but they'd have done it. Um, I have great support here. I have great support uh, from my bosses. Now, some of my colleagues that have since retired, they were not real friendly, um, but they they're all right. They I think they looked at me as a threat, right? Like I frightened them. And, mm-hmm. and the thing is, is when you want to move differently and you, you do want to be potentially a, a bit of a contrarian amongst the sea of movement, people immediately see you as a threat and they feel like they're wrong. And it's like Willie Nelson sings, you know, it ain't wrong. It's just different. And, and, um, so it's like, you know, and, and maybe it is wrong. I don't know, but it, it, there's some aspects we certainly know we need to change economically that, you know, kid has obviously been the leader in and. And so, yeah, it had taken a while. So then I, I re-racked our, our UP station too, right? We've got a farm up in the Upper Peninsula, and I want to do the same thing. And so that time I did a lot better, and I didn't get my ass in near as much trouble. And so it just kind of rolled, and we got we moved. So basically across the two farms today, we've got about 500 Red Angus animal units across those two. We've, we've followed and studied the cattle. We've, we've used Kitsch genetics over the years as well. It's it's been a little while. I've kept the herd pretty closed up. Sure, but we've uh, you know our cows. They're going to be in Michigan, where there's a lot of feed. Those cows at a, at about an age five, uh, they're going to be um, they're going to be around twelve hundred pounds in a BCS five to six at weaning. Okay, well you know that's neat, and I want to get into that now because I mean I'm I'm in southeast Minnesota, and a lot of these low input ranchers, you know, the kind of the main names in this industry, like Kit and some of the others are from south, southeast, southwest, western United States, lower snowfall, maybe a little warmer, more moderate temperatures that allow for a little bit easier wintering. And that's, you know, our greatest challenge here in southeast Minnesota. And so it's been a struggle to find people trying to, to discover low input ways of raising cattle in a high rainfall you know snowfall area you know winter temperatures and so you're in a similar maybe a little bit even worse snowfall area with your lakes close by i'm not i'm not sure but i'm curious you know wow okay yeah yeah so i mean talk to me i mean your 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 job or your goal is trying to discover low input ranching moderate systems with cow calf production in an area where winter is a huge challenge and, you know, we're in a similar position trying to do the same thing. What what have you found? What are the ways that you're trying to do to primarily, I guess, reduce winter feed costs, but also the rest of yeah. the production system as well? We, we've we done different things. Um, we really have trouble with any annuals staying up high enough in the winter. Uh, there's just so much snow and crap. And I don't like to farm, frankly. So... We've just gone the, 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 my, my like unfair advantage, you know, like Gar- Jim Garrish always says, everybody's got an unfair advantage, right? And one of yeah. mine, I, I've got a few, but one of mine is there's a lot of feet around me. And, you know, we're this little oasis of green grass around, amongst the, a lot of 2,000 to 5,000 cow dairies. Mm-hmm. And so as mm-hmm. far as like first cutting or rained on feed, you know, I can get, so, so like in Louisiana, when you're down there, and you're at or below I-10, and you get 8%, 7% crude protein in, uh, in Bermuda, Bahia grass, hey, you're celebrating, man, because it's hard to get your crude protein up. 
We know that crude protein drops below 7%. We can begin to see some decreases in intake, which can lead to diminishment of, of body condition. Now, others that are in this group have shown that that the cows can, you know, that they can graze four or five, six percent and still make it work. It's just tough. Um, so the one thing I can do is I can source quite a bit of fairly inexpensive feed that I, uh, that aren't good enough to feed to horses or dairy cows. And so that's basically kind of our bread and butter approach. We um, will identify the sandiest, least productive areas across the farm, and we will roll out hay uh, once daily in those areas and um, feed hay in, in those less fertile areas, unroll it, and go from there. And, you know, normally the goal is to probably hit about, oh, I, 22... 22 to 25 pounds per head per day. We quit supplemental feed when I got here, so I haven't fed any any bypro. I haven't fed any supplemental concentrate like anything, holes, distillers, you know, protein cubes, whatever. Haven't haven't fed since I got here in 09. and we find that works. It works for us. That that's about as good as I can do where I'm at, and um. The, the beauty and the other really good thing about us is typically our warmest summer temps don't get too, too hot. So we can, we don't have much, we, we do have a summer slump, but probably not as bad as y'all. Um, and that, that lake, to your point, really protects us. I mean, I think this area, it, it is, an, it's a grazing opportunity in a lot of ways, right? Because of our, our, our growing season, you know, so that, that's a big benefit. We've played a lot with the grass feds too, you know. Um, this last last year or two, actually, we've sold a lot of calves off the cow through Superior just because my research has really gotten so much into the, the cow and the climate piece, as you indicated. So it just kind of penciled out for us better to do that. Um, we actually started putting up some hay this last year or two because feed prices got a little higher. And by selling my calves, I didn't have the feed requirements that I typically would. And so I basically, instead of normally for probably eight years, I bought all our hay. We, we brought everything onto farm. And, but, but here we, we, we sold the baler too, right? We had a big, one of those, those big out, like big square balers that has appropriate tanks on it for like big alfalfa bales, got rid of that. So we did buy a little round baler just to kind of help out. And, and so we did put up some feed this last year too, cause I had it. And what'll happen a lot of times in our context is that snow and the moisture and the weight, it just really, we, we've tried to stockpile and it just doesn't work. It's too wet. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely what we found here and stuff as well. And we're fortunate that we don't have that snowfall that you've got. We actually are still grazing corn stalks at this point right now. And I don't know, you're maybe buried in a couple feet by now of snow, but we, we've only got a few inches and this is, can be somewhat common at the time true. now. Yeah. 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 So, you know, we, we've got that as an advantage for the short term, but do you know, as far as I've always wondered, and I don't know how this works with a research station, if you've got a university station, you maybe have funding to kind of help with these things, but do you do the numbers on your cows to kind of determine your actual cost per, you know, animal unit or per day, you know, do you know kind of what your cost cost of production is and relative to the profitability on a cow calf herd in your region? You know, I can't, this last year to two years, I can't, I can't exactly tell you, you know, and that's, that's partly my fault for not being prepared and partly because the fact all I've been hyper-focused on is measuring 
greenhouse gases. And I, my farm manager knows, you know, the fact is like here, really in our space, our cows eat so much less feed typically in the winter. And I mean, it, it's a big difference. You know, when you, you know, if you're feeding close to 2% of body weight, and most of the cows in our context are probably 16, 1800, you know, we're a good 30% lighter. Um, so we gain that. Well, I was going to say on the, on the grass feds is, um, you know, for us, we've been pushing like an 18 to 20 month model. And, and I think we can do it here. It's more expensive though, right? Like we have a real limiting um, opportunity on land. So the land I have, I've got to really make it work, right? I've got to push on it. I don't want a beef animal living on the same acre of land for, for three years. Okay. It just, it just, you know, that 26 to 30 month deal, it doesn't work as well for me. Doesn't mean it can't work well in North Dakota or some other place where you can afford to, to feed them cheaper and roll them along later. So we normally will end up, we, we've done it all, right? Like we fed really like, you know, second and third cutting alfalfa. Um, we fed first cutting alfalfa. We fed baleage. Uh, we fed, you know, really good grass, clover, legume, hay, um, and done it all. And typically what we found there is that we just don't get the best disappearance in the world when we feed a pretty heavy alfalfa in our context. It, we get a lot of, of stems. We get a lot of, you know, the, they'll sort through those leaves. They're just like a goat. And, and they'll sort through the leaves really good and leave, and leave a lot. And, and um, it's expensive. We're competing against the dairy industry constantly on that. So generally, we found that like a, a second cutting grass hay with a lot of legumes in it, that's been really good for our grass-fed program. They eat it. They, they convert well on it. Um, you know, we're, we're shooting for that one and a half to two pounds, probably through the winter, somewhere in there. And that, that's been good for us. And typically then we get those cattle in and can make that work pretty well. Now we're starting to find in the grass fed markets here that there's greater, you know, we, there's more and more people that are producing mm -hmm. and that's great. You know, if you're thousand Hills or, you know, or seven sons or whoever, um, we likewise don't want to compete as a university against a lot of folks. If that makes sense. I don't, I mean, I want to help, but I don't want to like, I don't want to antagonize somebody's bottom line with unfair advantages being a university. So we try to be mindful there. Um, sure. But this deal is getting a little tougher, in my opinion, just because there's more cattle out there. Yeah. Yeah. No, there is, which is exciting. And I think a lot of that probably stems from some of the research that you're doing and stuff as well, showing that this is a reality and showing that there's ways to do it profitably, even in, you know, some of these systems and environments up here where we have to feed for some, you know, several months of the year. So, you know, that's exciting. But you've touched a couple of times on the carbon and the research that you're doing with the carbon sequestration and environmental side of it. And that's definitely something I wanted to get into. And so maybe if you wouldn't mind just talking about how you know maybe where it started was that an original part of your plan was to do a lot of the research on grazing systems and how they impact climate or did that kind of you know evolve early on from your your, your work no it it uh it was on the radar right i was hyper focused when i got here on getting the cow herd right like i you know mm -hmm. normally when you get a new job they give you a little startup money and most people buy new research equipment or whatever. And, you know, I bought cows sure. and, uh, yeah. and so I was really, you know, focused on that. My appointments actually two thirds outreach, one third research. And, 
now I just kind of mm-hmm. view myself as an applied systems person period. But, um, had a PhD student from, um, Brazil that came up and, um, she was really interested and knew, knew we, I knew we needed it. Right. And so we went to work. Right. And so the first, the first study we did in the system was in 2011 and 12, I think. And what we did is we took, confounded the purposely confounded it. It was lovely. Um, we took a, a group of cows and we kept them kind of in quote unquote a mob such that we probably shot for about 200,000 pounds of stock density. And then we created quote unquote, like a MIG in the other mm-hmm. system, right? Like more of a, a, and so, so how do you contrast that? Well, probably more litter, uh, addressing the surface in the mob, more, uh, utilization, in, in more of the MIG approach where you've got more of that grass running through the animal. So how did I perfectly confound it? Well, I, I ran half the stocking rate with the goal, again, of, of putting more litter down. I ran half the stocking rate on the mob, and I really got my densities up. And then I – so I had t- twice the cattle in, in the MIG. And so mm-hmm. we also simultaneously in 2011 went and did a lot of soil cores across the farm, 50, 60, 70, maybe in 100. It's been too long. So then we did that. And then we, we measured methane. We measured nitrous oxide, enteric methane, nitrous from the soil. Nitrous has a high global warming potential. It has a very, uh, it, out of all the greenhouse gases we study, outside of getting into like the, the hexafluoride fluoride gases that, you know, or the stuff on your air conditioner, nitrous is pretty, sure. pretty potent. And so we um, measured all that and um, started there. And it's just kind of taken off. And so we, you know, it's really interesting because what we found is that honestly, it's really interesting that the greenhouse gas footprints weren't weren't too different. And, uh, you know, well, you've got twice the cattle in one footprint. And hmm. it should be easily that MIG that has twice the cows, right, should be higher if you want to look at a footprint. But it really wasn't. and methane was not double but it was close but for one reason or another we actually had a little more nitrous oxide going up in the mob and i probably think the way that you know we had them in a higher group well we're 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 putting out atmospheric chambers so we graze like we do like a day zero we graze it and then we Mm -hmm. come in again and and put in our chambers and measure what the gases are doing over time we did it like like a.m and p.m like a week out and what we ended up finding is a little bit of nitrous oxide in, increase in that system. And I, I don't know if it's real. I, I don't, I'm not saying it's that that was a function of the management. It could have been an anomaly for all I know. But that little bump in nitrous, the greater bump in nitrous oxide, it has a global warming potential of like 300. So it's like typically about 300 times more potent than one molecule of CO2. Methane's about 30. So there's like a tenfold difference in terms of global warming potential. And that tenfold difference, that little bump in nitrous equalized the footprints. So one bump in nitrous actually offsets double the methane when you look at carbon accounting. And that was really interesting to me. So here we are complaining about methane, killing the world and all that. But even small changes in nitrous can offset a lot of methane. And so then simultaneously, if you want to think about this in today's society, well, if we do go more plant-based, we're going to need a hell of a lot more fertilizer. And that fertilizer has a footprint as we make it. 
and then it has a footprint as we put it out because of volatilization. Not to mention uh, the the nitrogen that gets into our water bodies. And so those are things we don't talk about in today's society. We don't talk about the trade offs in greenhouse gases very well. And so we started then. Um, Got some cool data. Then uh, had a, a young lady by the name of Paige Stanley come and work with us on a master's. She's now finishing up at at Berkeley, and we'll be working at Colorado State on a project that we're working on. But uh, what we did then is we actually did some footprinting. So this would have been like in sixteen now. Um, so she was there from like thirteen to sixteen or fourteen to sixteen, something like that. And um, we actually compared a grass and a grain fed footprint based on real numbers at our farm, which is hard to do. And we actually showed that uh, we built carbon over time in that system. And I, I want to say a couple of things about carbon, if I can, Jared, on, yeah. on measuring it. Yeah. It's Please. the most damned yep. impossible thing there is to measure, frankly. It, <laughs> it is so challenging. Now, my friends in soil, car- you know, my hardcore soil scientist friends, I respect them because they, they've got it down as good as you can, but it's still a challenge because that underground variation is so hard. Soil texture and mm-hmm. it changes it. Landscape can change it in terms of, you know, looking at slope and the gradient of slope. You know, where a where a dinosaur might have died. I you know, there's no telling, right? Um, and and so the longer I do this work on the soil carbon piece, honestly, sometimes less confident I get in any of it. But we have shown pretty significant changes in carbon at our farm over time, pretty much higher, considerably higher than what a lot of the literature would say we could. And and effectively, what we found in that that study is that, number one, in our grass-fed model, when we were really managed grazing, we showed that we could get cattle done at a 40% better clip than you can in continuous grazing. And that that I'm proud of, right? Like that our management... All the all the bullshit you read and and all about grass finishing killing the world and all that it's it's not good. Often they use um, continuous set stocking. It's it's this kind of non managed low performance idea. Or what they do is they say, oh well, you've got to bring the steer up to fourteen hundred pounds because the one in the feedlot's fourteen hundred pounds, and then it takes forever to get them there. And then they 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 incorporate that methane or the water, and it's it's a sham because. You have to keep it in a system, and that system would suggest that in our model, killing cattle at about 1150 to 1200 pounds with about a 52 to 55% dressing percent, we can get it done 30 to 40% better. And in that process, we actually can build carbon. And hmm. if you just said, if you wanted just to apply that carbon to, the, to that, that finishing model, it's a sink. We didn't do the cow side. I, I didn't have a, enough. We, we could have written a book. If you do the cow side, you could argue that the cow management is the same as the yearling management, and it could expound that benefit at a, at a broader base. Um, sure, it isn't like it isn't like a hundred percent. You know, you get it all right because we we do know that it takes more land, and I'm I'm pretty confident that when you have a low like a, a non fertilized like perennial system with legumes, great. But you compare that in my context here, when guys are pushing for 250 bushel corn using that many units of nitrogen as well, it's a little challenging. I mean, let's, you know, and it's really apples and oranges, frankly. Now, if you were to go into that model and that best soil, put down some really good perennial grasses, you may make it closer. I'm grazing in a sandy landscape that can grow alfalfa, can grow pasture. 
uh, with a, with a lot of manure can grow corn silage. So so the, it's apples and oranges still. But we did did show some really cool things, and and that data's been uh, been out there a lot. It's it's used a lot, and and more recently mm -hmm. we've been comparing a mixed pasture to alfalfa in terms of carbon footprinting, and um, we've done some work down at White Oak Pastures, working with Will Harris, and shown some really great benefits of his model down there. And uh, we're also working on some really cool things in the future too. I can share if you want, or we can move on to a different subject. So. Yeah. Well, I do want to hear more about those things and stuff too, but on what you, you've just talked about, I've got a few questions and on the, the first research bro. project. Yeah. And that first research project you did, you talked about this nitrous oxide and, and I want now be the ma the MIG group produce significantly less nitrous oxide than the mob group. If I recall only correctly, 10%, only about 10%, but that, but that was enough to offset all of the additional carbon you know carbon produced because of the significantly higher you know group of cattle what was it about that mig that did that so so it was an it was basically the night the the small change in nitrous offset the methane and mm -hmm. that that was the gig right like mo most likely my guess is too is that it was a function of probably the density um it could have been the fact that we ran more grass through the cow versus laid it over hell i don't know but i don't really know if it's a real difference or not to be honest i don't probably sure. think it is but what i do know is that that small change in nitrous can offset a lot of methane you know arguably to the point where i think nitrous might be a bigger driver in beef footprints than than methane or what people might might want to believe on that well, it's such a complicated thing because, like, I mean, your your experiences in animal science, and now you're crossing over so many different science paths. I mean, your soil science and it, it chemical, is, you know, exactly. chemistry science. I don't even know how how you keep it straight. So it's it's way over my head, and to trying to get into it too deep, I suppose, in a short podcast here is probably a little bit uh, yeah. naive to think that we could. But on the on the next one, then that was the big one. You, you talked about like the footprint and and. Talk about like what, what you were measuring. I mean, was this like a whole life cycle kind of, what do they call it? Like a life cycle analysis and stuff more so than LCA. Yeah. 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 Talk about like, the, I mean, where were the made, main differences that you found between the two that uh, resulted in the, the net sink in the gra grazing based system versus the uh, commodity system? Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty straightforward that in that model here, you know, 70% of the greenhouse gas footprint of a, of a grazing model is methane typically. All right. That's generally what you're going to see. It could be, you know, again, and, and that's using modeling, right? And, um, that, you know, that's, that's using this aspect of, of modeling and mm -hmm. I, I could go on. So let me, let me just say this, if I can, first of all, talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. The International Panel of Climate Change basically like is the guiding the guiding entity on how we do this work globally. So they have actually come up, all their scientists from throughout the world that participate have come up with these formulas that predict methane, that predict nitrous, they predict animal, you know, whatever. And generally speaking, everybody uses those formulas because that's how you speak the same language globally on this type of entity or this type of metric. So what happens is that these formulas can be very broad and global and they're probably potentially right globally and wrong everywhere at the same time. And what I mean by that is they don't ever account for the nuance of a locally managed system. They don't account for the 
productivity as well, in my opinion, in the U.S. They maybe are more accurate in Africa or something. So that's one thing about them. You know, we've, we've measured in many, many cases 10 to 30% less methane on farm than what the IPCC says is actually happening. And that, that's a huge number, especially when all these companies are making pledges to lower their methane by 30% or lower their footprint by 30% or whatever. Hell, you might get there just with better math. Okay. So that's one thing I want to say. Number two, the fact that we have distilled the complexity of our management systems into a molecule of CO2 equivalent is ridiculous. It, yeah. It's that it's just what we do. We're freaking Luddite, like knuckle dragon homo sapiens sometimes, man. We're, we <laughs> we had this really complex deal, right? And uh, we're just going to use the CO2 equivalent. And if you're on the wrong side of it, you're screwed. And mm-hmm. you can say the same for you know, how we assess heart disease through lipidology or, you know, body mass index and, 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 and weight gain and obesity or whatever. Right. Um, and, and often these models are, you know, therefore very simplified. They're empirical in nature. They just take a few categories that are broad and then try to predict this massive complexity. And, and so that, I don't like that. Okay. But, but yeah. generally speaking on a grass and a grain fed footprint, Methane in the grass, that nitrous and that feed footprint in the grain is typically what's going to be a driver. You're going to have a considerably less methane in the in the grain footprint because of digestible starch, more propionate. You're going to have a basically just less methane going up there, but you are going to have more nitrogen. Now, the other thing that we haven't accounted for generally in grain or grass models over time in a lot of the science is what does happen with soil carbon. We don't account for it because we can't measure it very good. Or we don't measure it or we're not multi or interdisciplinary enough. So that's the other thing, right? Like if you were to take all of the soil loss in our cropping systems over the last hundred years and apply that on an annual basis, it could be a pretty large detriment. But what we do do is if I do look at it from 2020 to 2021, well, guess what? The carbon loss in soil in the grain system isn't very much because it's already all gone. And so it, it tends to have less of an effect now than might have of what would have happened several years ago. Yeah. So you're kind of just saying there, if I understand correctly, that, uh, I mean, it, well, first of all, reductionist science kind of doesn't work. Like, I mean, when you try to narrow it down to one or two factors in a system that's full of variables, it just, you know, it's not a fair representation of anything and stuff, but that, that the majority of the science on this kind of is based on net emissions and not any of the actual sequestration that comes into it as well. Is that kind of often? Yeah. And it's hard to measure. And we're, we're trying scientists, soil scientists are getting better. I mean, I'm working with a group at CSU on some new projects and their modeling, I think is the best I've seen and can get better. And I like, I like the work that's happening there. It's just, yeah, it's, it's awful hard. I mean, normally like in my space where I get grief, I get a lot of grief, but where I get grief from, I get it from two sides. I get it from like kind of that real veganistic, you know, this is all BS and the the whole math around methane, you're, you're fibbing to protect the big guy, blah, blah, blah. I get that a lot. But then I also get stuff because we're more in a systems where I get it from kind of more reductionary soil or animal scientists, right? Too that, you know, can't just take the fact that we're measuring a farm in an observational way and we're seeing these changes. And the thing that you're going to see, Jared, with the ranchers you work with and, you know, 
the people like Alan Savory and you know all these people like Alan or Gabe Brown or any of those guys, you know what one thing they have in common is elite observational skills. Mm-hmm. They have elite observational skills, and they can see these changes occur and observe it. They don't need a p-value. They don't need a statistical analysis to know that things are changing. And I think a majority of the ranchers that are participating in these types of of uh, circles would agree and, and are, are equally adept, most likely. And, and that's the thing, is that when you try to then carry this into the astuteness of a manuscript or you know getting a publication, <laughs> the media wants that. They, they want to see the science. They want to see if it's refereed. If I hear follow the science one more time, I'm going to puke. And it, <laughs> it um, joke indeed, but it, it's been quite the quote here recently, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that's the thing, right? So the observational deal is hard. And, and we want to be demonstrational observation because that's how you get to a systems-based level. Can we find things to measure in a more replicated, controlled way along that journey? Absolutely. We try to. I've got 64 acres of replicated ground that we do more intensive stuff on. What happens is you work on that place that's been at a research center for 100 years, okay? Think about all the legacy effects on that 64 acres. Think about all mm-hmm. the things that have occurred there through this you know, cascade of people doing research. How has that affected that piece of ground? Um, when was it tilled? When was it sprayed? When was it planted with something? All that affects the science and the data, right? And and it's a very difficult thing to account for. Yeah, it is. It's it's interesting. You know, I it, I had this conversation on a different podcast I do for my work with uh, uh, Anna Cates, who's the head of the Minnesota Office of Soil Health here and stuff. Kind of a discussion on the value. Where's the value? Of kind of observational science versus more like the the research studies and things done. And it really, you know, there's value to both. And and how do we, you know, I don't know. It's, it's complicated. And I have a whole lot of respect for people like you trying to put the numbers to what these people like Gabe and Alan are observing and seeing so that there's some, like you say, this science to for the, the media and the, the rest of the people to see. So I, I'm glad it's not me. That's <laughs> I'm happy to let folks like you do that. But uh, I'm curious on your, your place there that you're managing in Lake City, Michigan. Um, what are some of the observations that you've seen on the landscapes since you started managing in these ways that and was the management prior to you coming in in any way, shape, or form kind of this holistic in, uh, management or um, or was that a change? So when you quit fertilizer, you, you know, when you when you go cold turkey on nitrogen. Now we have, I, I should say, I don't want to lie, we've limed when we need to, right? There's areas that appear to be a little sour. We might get, you know, that kind of red sorrel that we get in the, in our, our part of the world and some indicators of a lower pH that will lime um lime's cheap sandy sandier soils it takes a lot longer to get to make progress i'll tell you that areas on our place that can take the longest to to get better are sand typically our clay clay areas here are pretty solid right like they we've impacted them positively but not at a higher rate as we have our loam soils so we've we've used trample effect uh, litter litter We've used those things, and we, we've seen improvement, um, no doubt. And um, But used to, like, we were moving, man, we would move three times a day. We'd move up to eight times a day and look and measure. Mm-hmm. And anymore, contextually, with all the things that we have going, it it's more along the lines of probably one move a day anymore is what we do. 
And it's just that we have so many other things going. And so what, what we've effectively seen over time is this aspect of, you know, we've measured our cow days per acre over, over that 10, 12 year period of time. And, mm-hmm. and so basically what, what we originally found, you know, so we, in 2009, we were running about 60 to 70 cow days an acre using a 30 pound intake increment as a cow day per acre. And that the farm was being grazed for 140 days a year. So not even four months, hardly. Okay. I mean, not even five months. And the pairs and yearlings were large and they were about a hundred and 170, somewhere in there. Um, our peak, probably our peak of pushing, right? Got to prove, got to prove, got to prove kind of a gig would have been 15. And in 15, we were running almost 300 pairs and yearlings. Now the, the gig, again, I started grazing all my hay ground. That, that's why. I mean, part, partly, but, but I did get the productivity. We grazed right at close to 200 days that year. And we were running about 120 cow days an acre that day, that year. So we almost doubled it. When you say cow days per acre, are you, are you referring to a 1200 pound cow with calf at side or animal units, like 1000 pound? Yeah, and I, I try to, so using 30 pounds, I, I'm, I'm oh, factor. Sure, sure. So I use that to factor everybody. And okay. that would be my yearlings. And that would be up to lactating cows. We know that the lactating cows at, at peak lactation are going to probably eat in, at 1250. They're probably pushing, you know, 3% of body weight anyway. Um, our yearlings, mm-hmm. we try to shoot for two, two and a half percent anyway, which would be like 20, 25 pounds, right? So mm-hmm. um, it kind of, that 30 kind of meets in the middle for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we were, we, we effectively came close to, to, to almost doubling in that, that window. Where we are today and, and, and part of this contextually has been just because of our new research. But um, we're this year in 2021, we ran, we're down, we sold the calves off the cow this, this last year and, la- and both last two years. So we're running about 150 uh, pairs and replacements. Our days grazing, we're right at 200 in 2021. And uh, our cow days per acre were less than what they were in 15. They were probably around 80. But we also harvested about 160 tons of hay off the place this year. And that's because we we had more grass so we can say grace over. And that was just a function of losing the the yearlings. So effectively, if you wanted to look at the cost of hay versus us making it, uh, we've been banking a lot of energy in that system up for, for the last 10, 12 years. And so it just we just went ahead and, and put the hay up because we had it. And then that way we didn't have to worry it's been a little hairy in a university setting with the ding, you know, the, the pandemic thing and whatever. And so, you know, we've, I, th- I think we've got data to really support the fact that, that we've made tremendous improvements, but we've simultaneously lowered inputs. We've, we've eliminated our nitrogen, we've eliminated our supplemental feed. Um, and so those things add up and, and pencil out pretty well from a financial perspective. Yeah, no, I, that's that's huge. Like you just said, I mean, you're increasing productivity while reducing expenses. That's the perfect key for you know increasing net profitability. And if someone in this region or like myself, I'm I'm just curious, kind of to sum all this up as we kind of start getting towards where we should wrap up here. A person in more of a high moisture, high snowfall northern environment like this on more productive grounds, if they wanted to take more of a commercial, you know, standard cow calf production system and 
make it more profitable? What have you seen are the key first steps and kind of later series of steps to make towards reducing their expenses and increasing their profitability ultimately? Yeah, we we generally know, right, that 90% of the Cal-Calf business is is explained, profitability is explained on the expense side and not the income side. And of that, of that variation, most all of it is explained by nutrition cost. And so how you manage that nutrition cost is going to be really a key driver. And, and those that regardless, like, you know, there's been work out of K-State and other places, regardless of size of operation and scale, there, there seems to be that, that kind of shotgun blast amongst small, medium, and large producers that those that, that manage their feed costs the best win. And by the best way to do that is to graze longer in the season and to have greater management. And, and that would be the, the key thing. I think simultaneously, um, genetically, um, I, you know, we've, we've seen the productivity. I, we did some long time work back in the day comparing our big semi cows to these smaller cows. And there's a great potential there from that genetic side as well. When you've got, if you are going into that input phase where you've got less nutrition costs and energy going in, then you need to have a cow that can take it. And generally speaking, those cows are going to be low, lower in terms of their body weight. We took like eight years of data and we took every cow and the weaning weight and we watched those weights and weaning weights over time, ran a lot of stats on it. And basically the most profitable cow on our place was the lightest weight cow that was grazed the longest in the season. And generally those cows were probably, I was laughing about those little Herefords earlier, those cows could be 900,000 pounds. And even up here, those cows actually were the most profitable when we looked at all of our cows over about an eight-year period of time. Um, so grazing over 200 days a year in our climate and having a cow closer to 1,000 pounds, that was the most profitable. We have a tough time keeping cows at that weight with all the energy we have available here. And and so that and that's in a, adjusted back to a BCS five, I should say, also right. Sure. Yep. And we we have a handful of cows that are that way, but most of ours are going to be like like I said, that average is closer to twelve. So that that's that's what our data would show over about eight years of analyzing cow and calf data. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah, really, yeah, oh, that's interesting. I'd be, I'd be curious if there's a place where some of these research and data that you've got is there a place people can go to find some of this if they want to learn more about it. Yeah, we've got some things. I ought to do a better job. I'm not good at that. Um, most all these things are published, right? We've got papers published all on this. And uh, um, we, we have a new re- regenerative ag center here that we're working on building that will be a reservoir for that also. Cool. And, and earlier, I forget now even what it was that you mentioned you're working on some new stuff. Was it with Will, Will Harris? Was there anything there that you want to mention that you're kind of working on going forward that you're excited about people should look for? Yeah, actually, we just, uh, a, a joint effort between Noble Research Institute, Michigan State, Wyoming, many other universities, um, we just uh, got a, a $19 plus million dollar project on the runway to measure uh, ecological function at scale, uh, carbon, energy, and water. And uh, we'll be working intensively in the upper Midwest, in the lower Great Plains, and in the Mountain West. Uh, we're going to be expanding our intensive uh, monitoring and, and, and metrics into 20 ranches or farms across those three sites as well. So we'll be measuring on intensively on 60 places uh, throughout the U.S. 
And so to me, that's going to be one of the biggest investments I've seen in trying to move this forward and uh, understanding ecological function in, in grass and pasture. So I'm excited about that. Oh, that's awesome. Kind of two final questions here for you. The first one is, are there any resources, and that can be anything, book, podcast, conference, conventions, things that you would recommend for people who want to learn more about this in general? Uh, one or two or three re- resource recommendations you got? You know, I, I think the work, the guys at Understanding Ag and Soil Health, uh, the Soil Health Academy, fantastic. I'm a big believer in the work Alan Savory and the work he's put together. And so I think the Savory Institute or Holistic Management International would be another spot that that has just dramatically helped me. Um, then the Grass-Fed Exchange Group, too, that, that I've thankfully been a part of over the years is a great place for information. Networking, I think the Grass-Fed is going to have a conference in Fort Worth in May this year. Uh, so there'll be real people and everything. And so um, those are the, the, the three that just come to mind. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little bummed. They planned it right when at least uh, us, and I feel like a lot of grazers are calving <laughs> in the beginning of May. So that was kind of a bummer. I would love to yeah. get to another grass note exchange, but uh, definitely the one I made it to out at your place was well worth the uh, the visit. So definitely encourage anyone to get there and I'll get links to that in the show notes. But um, last question is, if somebody want to learn more um, or reach out to you, uh, find you know something about what you're doing, uh, where would you direct them? Uh, probably email. R-O-W-N-T-R-E-1 at msu.edu. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Jason. I really appreciate it. It was cool to hear all of what you're doing. I'm, I'm excited about it. Yeah. Good, good to chat. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Faro Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.